Whenever you get an American president visiting the United Kingdom or a British prime minister visiting the United States, you can bet that you're going to hear the term the special relationship a handful of times. With the exception of countries that are legally affiliated to each other, such as those in the European Union, the special relationship between America and Great Britain could be considered the closest between any two countries. To modernize, it seems really reasonable that uh, the two countries would be such good pals. Their values are pretty aligned for the most part. They share a similar language. We share celebrities. Uh, they're both market-oriented countries. They share a very similar style of governance. Um, and their foreign policies are pretty similar. Uh, this might all seem very peachy in the present, but the fact that this occurred is really strange because, well, Great Britain essentially handed the reins of power over to the Americans, and that's not typically how power, well, moves uh, in our global system. There's a really good book that I recommend everyone here read, and it's called Destined for War, which is based partially upon a quote by a guy named Thucydides, whom is an Athenian historian and general in ancient Greece, uh, who was commenting on the war between Athens and Sparta at the time of his life. Uh, that quote was, What made war inevitable was the growth of Athenian power and the fear which this caused in Sparta. Sparta was the incumbent power, and Athens was the rising power. Now, Graham Allison's book, Destined for War, uh, coins the phrase Thucydides' trap, this idea that when a powerful incumbent country's position as number one is challenged by a rising power, they more often than not find themselves at war. As Graham Allison laid out in his book, there have been 16 such instances in the past 500 years, 12 of which led to war, which translates to a 75% chance of war every time you have, well, a power shift or a potential power shift, that is. The two countries are best characterized by two different but very telling emotions of their states. The rising country would be overwhelmed with a feeling of hubris, and the incumbent country is overwhelmed with fear. The most famous version of Thucydides' trap would have to be the German rise in continental Europe, uh, which eventually led to War I against that of the incumbent power at the time, the British. Now, the transfer of power is rarely peaceful, as we have mentioned. And as we mentioned also, that peaceful transition that everyone would like to see happen is only occurring 25% of the time, which isn't exactly great odds. Now, war doesn't erupt spontaneously. Usually, it typically is the result of years, if not decades, of ever-increasing tensions that at some point finally boil over into outright conflict. This can be avoided, but it usually comes at a cost to the incumbent country. Now, after I've read Destined for War and done all this research about it, I've come to the mindset that it is the incumbent country's position to make the majority of the sacrifices in order to ensure peace. During America's rise, Great Britain was a worldwide hegemon. And if America wanted a sphere of influence, say, in the Western Hemisphere, it's not as if America could make a tit-for-tat trade for that sphere with Great Britain. The incumbent country in this instance, and most other instances, is the one that has all the riches and power and all the things to offer. In this case, Great Britain did make sacrifices, hoping to ensure a lasting peace with the rising Goliath on the other side of the Atlantic, the United States. We're going to go into more detail later about America and Great Britain's relationship uh, for the 19th century. Uh, but just to give a brief rundown right now, America fought a war of independence with Great Britain in 1776, another hot war in 1812, which resulted in the burning of the capital, and the Americans and British nearly slipped into war a multitude of times in the 19th century, with chance of war erupting in the 1840s, 1860s, and 1890s, and honestly, there could have been other instances, I just couldn't find them documented. 
The fact that America would go from nearly fighting a war with Great Britain to fighting a war with Great Britain, that is World War I, in the span of just roughly 20 years is really astounding and extremely unusual. This outcome, which is, well, in my opinion, due to luck, pragmatism, and some well-performed diplomacy resulted in that change of sentiment between the two countries that made it possible for them to look past their bloodied past and instead see a cooperative future. When America came onto the world stage at the turn of the 20th century, uh, Britain had already mended the relationship between the two countries by making sacrifices. Some would choose the word appeasement. Now, appeasement is a dirty word when we look at it in history because the infamous appeasement deals that had been made prior to World War II with Germany, which in that case, they thought that if they gave Germany the right to, I guess, annex Czechoslovakia, uh, that that would quell their imperial ambitions. Now, just like the Germans prior to World War II, American policy was also rather ambitious and it ends with other countries. Both countries desire to expand now, unlike the German expansion in Europe, America's uh, interests and actions were focused in the Western Hemisphere, and unlike the appeasement deal that was struck with the Germans in the 1930s, which, as we know, didn't work, the appeasement deal struck with the Americans did. War was avoided, and skipping over two world wars and a multitude of other events, America went on to be the hegemon we know today, with its best friend in tow, Great Britain. Wherever America is, well, you can usually find Great Britain with it. The British may not have understood that the United States would be the global hegemon it is today when setting out to mend that relationship. In fact, the logic for nurturing the American relationship was very much selfish. Great Britain simply had other problems in its neck of the woods, and when it made that decision, countries much closer to home were beginning to challenge Great Britain's position, and having a, well, friendly America instead of an antagonistic one was seen as beneficial. Which brings us to the overarching theme of this podcast. Great Britain and the United States avoided war and, in fact, became, well, great friends. It is the pinnacle of power transitions, I would say, at least in a realistic world. That's not to say that feelings were not hurt on the British side in particular, but for the most part, it was, well, a good transition. And now we find ourselves in, well, another, perhaps, instance of Thucydides' trap. This time, America is the incumbent power, and, well, the rising power is China. There are things to learn from America's rise and Great Britain's reaction to that rise. And this is not a perfect analogy by any measure, but I think it's important to understand, well, for my American listeners out there, NATO or any of our allies in the well, Asia-Pacific region, that this is going to be a very complicated next 30 years. This relationship will determine the 21st century, that relationship being the American and Chinese relationship. And I think it's in our best interest that we avoid war, but it's going to come at a cost. And I think the best way to start by well, looking at these costs is to, well, look at what Great Britain's costs were when it ensured that America would be a friend and not a foe, because I don't think Great Britain looks back upon those decisions and, well, regrets them by any measure. Well, without further ado, I give you the first episode of The Technocrat. A blood-soaked friendship. This is going to come as a surprise for some of you, but there was a time period where America was actually a part of Great Britain. 
America fought its first civil war, as they're called, but the Revolutionary Wars, if uh, you win. So America's Revolutionary War against the British happened in 1776. There were some disagreements about representation, um, at least amongst the aristocrats in America, who felt that they were the second-class citizens to the aristocrats in Great Britain. Long story short, a war was fought, and America became a new nation, and the countries weren't exactly fond of each other from the get-go. Now skip ahead about 25 years, and we find ourselves in the beginning of the 19th century and the beginning of the 1800s. And we have the beginning undertones of the War of 1812, as it's known in America, really creatively named, and the British-American War for everyone else. Now, I'm not going to go into the details about why America got involved in this war. Uh, I'm just going to give a brief overview. So first and foremost, Britain was fighting a war with France. France helped the United States in its war of independence, and there were some calling for America's assistance of the French. However, it was being ruled by Napoleon at the time, not exactly the peace lover that makes it excusable for the Americans to intervene. However, America did get pressured into going into war, partially due to the fact that the British impressed American sailors. Now, what that means is that the British were stopping American trading ships, taking American sailors off those ships, and forcing them to serve in the British Navy. This was done under the idea that they were actually British sailors that had, I guess, left the British Navy and therefore were deserters and could be forced back into subscription. However, most of the time they were actually American sailors, and uh, it didn't do much good for the British's PR in the minds of the average American. After some time, the United States did eventually declare war, and to say that America was doing it purely because of its honor would be misleading. Because the British were preoccupied with Napoleon um, in his conquering of Europe, it seemed like a mighty fine time for the Americans to, well, get rid of the British influence for good in North America, i.e. that of Canada, which would be a reoccurring desire of the Americans for a long time, the conquest and making her into, well, just another part of the United States. Now, because the British were so entrenched with the French, um, the British enlisted some allies to make up for their lack of abilities. Tecumseh, a Native American from the great and wild wilderness of Ohio, was brought along to fight the Americans with the promise that if they, the Native American, could get their own country within the American territory once the Americans were properly whipped. The war rather revealed how weak America was at this point. The few garrisons in Canada repulsed the American invasion of Canada, and the Native Americans laid havoc on the frontier. The British eventually found their way to Washington, D.C., though. Uh, this was after the British had dealt with the French problem, and they could focus their efforts on the United States. So the British sailed up the Chesapeake, landed in Washington, and burned down the presidential mansion, the White House of its time, and more interestingly, the Capitol building, uh, the epicenter of the legislative branch. Uh, this is the place where Congress and the Senate meet. In a bit of a dig, the British entered the Capitol and held a mock session of Congress, with the British Admiral Cockburn taking the Speaker's chair, who brought a vote to the floor. Quote, All in favor of setting fire to this harbor of Yankee democracy, say aye. The soldiers agreed unanimously and set fire to the Capitol. You simply have to give the British credit here. At least when they run Congress, they get things done. I couldn't find the best sources for this quote, but it's really entertaining, and I like to think it did occur, so I'm leaving it in. Uh, the war was eventually settled after the Treaty of Ghent. Neither side got any territorial gains. The British did agree to stop trying to set up an independent Indian nation. 
Um, like the previous war, uh, the American Revolutionary War, that is, the Americans celebrated this war as a great victory, calling it the Second War of Independence, which was pretty delusional, in my opinion. Uh, the British, like the last war, though, largely forgot about it. The war didn't establish anything in the measure of land acquirances or anything like that. But what the war did accomplish was the fact that America and Great Britain now liked each other even less. Uh, so the fact that the British burned down the American capital in Washington, D.C., well, that doesn't do much good uh, in trying to establish a better, uh, more friendly relationship. And the fact that the Americans were going to invade and annex Canada would make the British forever suspicious of the Americans as America would continually grow economically and demographically. Now, this next event isn't exactly a bad relation by any means. Actually, it's probably a good one between the two countries. Um, but it's really important to know about because it's going to be fundamental for our story going forward. So we find ourselves in the 1820s. Uh, the 1820s was a revolutionary time for Central and South America, whom were undergoing independence movements or already had undergone them uh, seemingly everywhere. There was a fair amount of talk of not letting the South and Central America former colonies, well, become former colonies, aka recolonizing them. Although Spain and Portugal didn't have the means so much to reestablish their colonies, others did. Something called the Holy Alliance, which consisted of Russia, Prussia, and Austria, were mulling the idea over of recolonizing the South American and Central American states, with France helping out as well. Britain, whom was forever worried about any European power getting too powerful, opposed the idea openly, while America also detested the idea because of fear that the European armies would one day march from Central and South America into the southern United States. So Great Britain and America found themselves to be allies for one of its first times. The result of this mutual desire to prevent Europe from recolonizing South and Central America was something called the Monroe Doctrine, which was named after President Monroe in the United States. Now, the Monroe Doctrine is said, essentially, that any independent state, so all the newly independent states in South America, could not be recolonized, otherwise it would be interpreted as an act of aggression against the United States. This is the important part where America and Great Britain are friends. The Americans could not enforce this doctrine by any measure. It was just 10 years ago that the British pretty much beat the Americans with one hand behind their back while they were fighting a war with France. The idea of opposing an alliance of Russia, Prussia, uh, which is part of modern-day Germany, and Austria, well, was just not going to happen. So it came down to the British um, who would need to enforce the Monroe Doctrine. Luckily, they had the strongest navy on Earth. Uh, they wouldn't have to fight a land army against another land army of those of the European continent. They just had to prevent them from landing. And this was enough of a deterrent to prevent the South American and Central American states from being recolonized. It was one of the first instances where America and Great Britain could work together. However, it would be some time before they did so again. Now, back to conflict. Uh, in the 1840s, it was, well, a rather strange time for America. So America was simultaneously expanding westward. It was dealing with the issues of slavery and the paradoxes of it, and also trying to figure out whether it wanted to fight a war with Great Britain, Mexico, or maybe both. Uh, so Texas, whom had gained its independence from Mexico in a war in the 1830s, sought to be annexed by the United States, and that feeling was mutual. However, if the Americans did annex Texas, it would mean war with Mexico, because Mexico did not recognize Texas independence as legitimate. 
To the north, America had a boundary issue with Canada, a colony of Britain, and it was also trying to figure out this whole issue regarding the Oregon Territory. The Oregon Territory consisted wholly or partially of modern-day Washington State, Oregon, Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, and British Columbia, and it was agreed that the territory would be loosely governed by America and Britain in an agreement that goes back to the 1810s, when this territory was very sparsely populated by either of the country's settlers. President Polk claimed that the Oregon Territory belonged to that of the Americans because Britain's attempt to colonize the Oregon Territory would be in violation of the Monroe Doctrine, which it really wasn't, considering it wasn't a new colony per se. Uh, but more interestingly, President Polk argued that the Oregon Territory should be governed democratically, which at the time, Britain wasn't as democratic as the United States. Please ignore the paradox of slavery when I say that, which we will talk about here shortly when we talk about the American Civil War. But for the time being, just realize that President Polk was threatening to tear up a treaty that the United States had signed with Great Britain because they said that the Americans had a more legal right to the Oregon Territory purely because the settlers in that territory would be given the right to vote, which was something they would not be given if they were British subjects, which is preposterous. That doesn't violate a treaty by any measure. Anyway, America advocated a 54th parallel line for the territory, which would have meant that the U.S. territory would have been adjacent to the colony of Alaska, which at the time was owned by the Russians. This is in contrast with the other parts of the border that America had with Canada, which was on the 49th parallel, which you can see if you ever look at the Minnesota uh, border with Canada. The American argument was invalid in regards to the Oregon Territory. That pretty much goes without question. However, it didn't really matter in the minds of the Americans because the Americans wanted to have a continent-sized country, and God wanted it for America because of manifest destiny. Uh, so all those previous treaties and legalities wasn't really going to hold America back, but luckily, pragmatism would. Britain considered America's threats to be realistic enough to send 30 warships to the Caribbean as a show of force, which was a lot of ships at the time. America was not in the position to fight even one war with Great Britain, so a two-front war with Great Britain and Mexico, because America was going to annex Texas, was simply out of the question. And also, if America fought a war with Great Britain, it would then give the British the excuse to organize aid and support for that seemingly inevitable war with Mexico uh, due to Texas. It was best said by a Missouri senator about America's eventual decision, quote, Why not march up to the 54th-54th parallel, as courageously as we march upon the Rio Grande, because Great Britain is powerful and Mexico is weak? End quote. The joint government over the Oregon Territory would be done away with, and a formal boundary would be established due to the near confrontation, and that border was consistent with the Minnesota boundary line or the 49th parallel. So what's the main takeaway from the 1840s? Well, I think the main one is actually going to be for Great Britain. They signed a treaty, Great Britain and America, that is, in 1810s uh, regarding the Oregon Territory, and America was willing to just tear that thing up and throw it away purely to benefit American interests in expanding westward uh, in hopes of achieving manifest destiny, which is preposterous. How are the British supposed to trust the Americans going forward? They share one of the largest land boundaries in the world, and this idea that America would just tear up a treaty because it saw fit, because it wanted X or Y to occur, is, well, concerning, considering the fact that Canada is so exposed to America. And this would be embedded in the British mentality towards America going forward, because it would just be seen that America was just, well, a horde of aggressors. 
whom could not be trusted to keep their word. Now, the American perception of the British wasn't really changed all that much. Great Britain was a stronger power before this incident, and the Americans knew it maybe more so after the fact. The fact that Great Britain was willing to send 30 warships into the Caribbean as a deterrent to the Americans' potential actions in the Oregon Territory was seen as a somewhat of a rude awakening for the fact that although America claims the Western Hemisphere as its own sphere of influence, it didn't really have any authority to enforce that, and it just made the relationship more strained because, well, one country was more powerful than the other, and America didn't like being seen as the weaker. Okay, and now this is the cutoff. Now I will go into depth about the American and British relationship because it's really interesting, uh, first of all. But secondly, I think it's really relevant to kind of showing how countries will treat each other uh, when you have a rising power versus a incumbent power. And that gives us the Civil War. So the Civil War was a fight between the North and South, the Union and Confederacy. The Confederacy was a block of southern states that had separated from the Union over a disagreement about states' rights, although that would later transform into a fight over slavery, but we're not going to really dive into that. But more importantly, at the turn of the Civil War in 1860, America had started to show real strength and promise as becoming, well, a great country, at least from a size perspective. So America's population had already dwarfed the population of Canada in 1860. Canada's population was 3 million. America's was 31 million. Now, it could always be said that when Britain was a, well, the world's superpower, which it was in 1860, it never had permanent friends, only permanent interest. And it was always in the British national interest to prevent hegemony wherever possible, aka regional dominance. This is particularly true in Europe, but this idea was also prevalent in the Americas as well, aka the United States. When the Civil War sprung up, it almost seemed too good to be true for the British. Here you have this country that was showing itself to be demographically just a behemoth, and it was starting to industrialize as well. And then you just have the Civil War pop up, threatening to divide the country in two. This was just a great opportunity for the British. Here you have the opportunity to strangle the American baby in the cradle before it could really rise to be a true threat to the British. As you might be aware, though... Great Britain didn't really intervene in the Civil War, which was for surprising reasons, but it didn't mean they didn't try. The first few years of the Civil War was an absolute tragedy for the North, with no major battle wins on the Eastern Front, which was the main front of the war. Uh, but also, the North didn't even abolish slavery until 1863, which gave the North the moral high ground in the debate over whether the British should back the Confederacy or not. So in those first few years of the war, Britain didn't do much with it, uh, and that was in part due to the Lincoln administration, who had played their hand exceptionally well, and that would be President Abraham Lincoln. The United States actually had sent a diplomatic envoy to Britain and publicly stated that the British support for the Confederacy would be matched by the United States' actions within internal Britain. Now, prior to this, America had always had Canada kind of as a lever for which she could put pressure on the British. But now she was saying she was going to reach internally into Great Britain. How is she going to do that? Well, that's interesting because although Britain did have the vote, aka democracy to an extent, it was limited to only about two-fifths of British men, while all white men in America could vote regardless of property ownership in the 1850s. Now, 
Once again, I'm not saying that America is a perfect democracy. It was just a more democratic place than Britain was at the time. This really worried the British because, firstly, they thought America was absolutely mad to allow commoners to have such a say in politics, which is where the second concern was, which was that Britain was legitimately worried that these Yankee principles of universal suffrage for all men, regardless of pedigree, could become a popular idea in Great Britain, which could spark some kind of revolutionary tide inside the nation. This obviously was a relatively popular idea amongst the lower and middle classes, and if America could reach its hand into Britain's domestic politics and inflame that desire of the lower and middle classes, well, that could be extremely meaningful. This idea that America had soft power was already kind of well-established. Because of its democratic ideals, it had an international appeal, and this was without the American government stoking the flames of revolution. The American position in the eyes of the British could be best surmised by a U.S. minister to Britain, Charles Francis Adams, quote, the great body of the aristocracy and commercial classes are anxious to see the United States go to pieces. The lower and middle classes sympathize with us, end quote. To show the Americans meant business, uh, aka that they would reach internally into Great Britain and meddle with their politics, the Lincoln administration actually sent food relief to the unemployed British workers to cultivate positive sentiment amongst the average British man. This idea that America could flame, well, the fires of revolution were made even more credible by the fact that America had such a large amount of first-generation immigrants from the United Kingdom, um, actually the British Isles probably may be more accurate, uh, which had immigrated to the United States. And these people still had family ties, and America could in theory use these family ties to organize secessionist movements back home. In particular, Ireland was a colony of Great Britain, and they weren't exactly fond of it, and Scotland also looked vulnerable. Another factor that became extremely relevant in the war was the fact that the Union showed a great ability to arm itself and become a fully mobilized country as far as in its determination to wage war. So any kind of assistance to the South could lead to a Union invasion of Canada, something the British public wasn't exactly anxious to see as Great Britain had just fought a war with Russia in Crimea and wasn't eager to get involved in another fight. The icing on the cake would come when Abraham Lincoln would issue his proclamation of emancipation, uh, which did away with slavery in, well, the South or any secessionist state. And there was a big abolitionist movement in Great Britain. And the fact that Great Britain might perhaps back a country that was backing slavery and against a country that was trying to abolish it and fighting a war over it was not going to be politically palatable with any um, government that was in charge of Great Britain at the time. In the end, Great Britain wasn't looking to get involved in the Civil War without company. Even though all those three factors we just mentioned were deterrents, it wasn't necessarily enough. The prize was pretty great, considering you could break America up. But when Russia and France, who were supposed to be its co-conspirators in bringing the Civil War to the end, couldn't agree on the terms to apply... For an end to the Civil War, the British were forced to give up the idea of intervening. So at the end of the war, in 1865, Great Britain would never really interfere, at least officially. However, unofficially, there were some aspects of Great Britain that did intervene. Some enterprising Brits built commerce raider ships for the Confederate Navy. Now, this was a private enterprise for the most part. Uh, now, the most famously built ship was the CSS Alabama, which sunk more than 60 Union ships during its career in the war. And to add a bit more flavor to the situation, the ship was mainly manned by British civilians. However, it was 
captained by Confederate soldiers. The issues of the CSS Alabama wouldn't be fully addressed until after the war, but the public's reaction, that being the Americans, uh, wasn't really surprising considering, well, how anxious the British seemed during the war, well, to divide the United States. So with the United States Army already standing after the war, uh, the U.S. had roughly one million men in the military. It was the largest military in the world at the time. And there was some calling for the invasion of that beautiful country to the north, Canada, as a reparation for, well, the building of the CSS Alabama. Some senators were also demanding $2 billion in damages uh, to be paid, or alternatively, the ceding of Canada. It seems the goal here was Canada. The issue was never really given full attention in the American psyche, just because the war was such a tragic affair for both sides, the North and the South. So there was a war weariness in the population. And plus, there were some big questions standing about, well, reconstruction of the South and how to bring the South back into the Union to reform the United States of America that we know today. So in 1871, when cooler heads prevailed and the issue could simmer for a while, an agreement was reached. Uh, it was called the Treaty of Washington, which sent the Alabama claims, as they were called, uh, to Geneva, Switzerland for arbitration, which resulted in the payment of $15.5 million to America, just shy of that initial request of $2 billion. The treaty also settled some boundary issues up in the Oregon Territory, and the Americans were given the rights to fish in Canada. Uh, once again, Canada lay just outside the grasp of the Americans. The big takeaways from the Civil War was that in prior confrontations uh, between the United States and Great Britain, the matters at hand were due to boundary issues or honor or something along those lines. But when the Civil War erupted, America was no longer some former colony that was an inferior power. America seemed to be on this road to becoming a near-peer competitor to that of Great Britain. The fact that Great Britain appeared to be so anxious to exacerbate the divisions in America and make permanent the Confederacy just made matters worse in the Americans' eyes. It was one thing to be, well, the antithesis of what America stands for. It's another when you're trying to, well, to divide the country into. And with that, the belief systems of the two countries were just in such stark contrast. The British Empire was at its peak in this moment. The expression, the empire on which the sun never sets, was truthful. The British had holdings on every continent except Antarctica and had dominion over one-fourth of the world's population. The British represented what America detested. The Americans believed that all countries had the right to self-determination. And Britain's massive amount of colonial holdings was just the antithesis to that idea. And this is not to mention that the U.S. had a very large Irish population, which also happened to detest the British. With all that considered, when you ask yourself, well, what are the chances that America and Great Britain go to war? When you look back on everything we just talked about, it doesn't seem that unlikely, especially as the two countries become competitors regionally in the Americas, but maybe one day around the globe. But we aren't there yet. The United States has the potential to be a near-peer competitor, but it'll take some time. And that time is between 1870 and 1898. Now, this era is often referred to as the Gilded Age, uh, even though most Americans probably won't remember too much about this time period, or most of the presidents, Grover Cleveland, Benjamin Harrison, Chester Arthur, James Garfield, Ruthard B. Hayes. I had to Google these too. Uh, but anyway, the Gilded Age is often referred to as a period of greed 
and growth. Uh, this period of history is often frowned upon. It is a period known for corruption of public officials, monopolies, uh, and neither of these really generate positive feelings. But the economic engine that would be developed would change the way America behaves internationally because, as you'll often see, economic power begets political and military power. Just so you can understand the sheer growth of America in this period, I want to throw some stats at you. So in 1860, the U.S. population was 31.4 million. And then in 1870, the population had grown to 38.6 million. And by the time 1900 rolled around, the United States population was 76.2 million. It doubled in the span of 30 years. The U.S. had surpassed the population of the British Isles, including that of Ireland, in 1857, uh, the newly united Germany in 1870. The sheer growth is just astounding. America went from a few colonies in 1800 with the measly 5 million people to a continent-sized country with oceans on two sides, and it was the third most populated country on Earth, only behind that of India and China. In economic terms, the trajectory of the U.S. growth was just as astounding. So in 1870, the United States' per capita income was 74% that of the average British citizen and 128% of the average German. In 1870, the British economy, not including her territories, was producing just a little more than the U.S. on a purchasing power parity basis. By 1913, however, the U.S. economy had grown fivefold, and now is double the size of Britain's home economy, but has also doubled Germany's and China's. The U.S. per capita income on a $1990 basis was $5,301 in 1913, while Britain's was just 4921 On a manufacturing basis, Britain accounted for 23% of global manufacturing in 1880, but had fallen to 13% by 1913. In 1913, the United States accounted for 32% of the world's output in manufacturing. In 1913, the United States accounted for over 60% of the world's petroleum production. In 1871, the United States had just 45,000 miles of railroad track, and by 1900, another 170,000 miles had been added. By the turn of the century, the United States was an economic behemoth, but it was still a relatively benign power. Now, economic strength typically begets military strength, but America hadn't really gone down that road. America really hadn't sullied itself with the colonialism the way that Europe had in Africa and the race for Africa in the 1880s, or for that matter, what Europe did around the world. Americans believed in self-determination, and for the most part, uh, the United States practiced that. Obviously, there's some glaring exceptions in there with the Native Americans, but I digress. Uh, but that was kind of the state of things um, at the turn of the century. America was this benign economic behemoth, but it didn't translate to anything yet. Now, enough about the United States, because the late 19th century was a chaotic time period for just about everyone. And in the 1880s, everything had changed in the eyes of the British. And this feeling of fear that we talk about that sets in when an incumbent powers, well, hegemony is kind of eroding, really began to set in uh, in this time period. And to understand Britain's place in the world in the 1880s and then later in the 1890s, we have to take a step back just so we can understand kind of, well, how we got here. Britain's supremacy um, in the world kind of began shortly after the Napoleonic Wars. And the Napoleonic Wars were extremely devastating. To put in perspective, the Napoleonic Wars took proportionally about a similar amount of life in continental Europe as World War I would. And it left this, the continent of Europe in tatters. 
that is with the exception of Great Britain, which was kind of found itself in a situation similar to that of America after World War II, where when the battles aren't fought on your soil, it does a lot of good in ensuring that you don't get absolutely destroyed. So all of what could potentially be Great Britain's rivals were all relatively in ruin. France, obviously, was the most ruined uh, because it was the instigator of the Napoleonic Wars, and it had lost a large amount of its population. Russia uh, had been invaded by the French, and they were pretty much in ruins. Germany wasn't even a unified country yet, neither was Italy. Uh, Spain and Portugal were in the midst of losing almost all of their imperial possessions in South and Central America. And then you had Great Britain, who lost a lot of men in the war, but they walked away relatively scot-free. And what would occur over the next 60 years was pretty astounding. Because of this vacuum that was somewhat left uh, by the other continental European powers that used to kind of balance uh, Britain, well, Britain would discontinually expand until it would meet resistance. And it was a while before it would meet resistance. So those 60 years, Britain would end up controlling the oceans of the world with the world's largest navy by far. Uh, and in the span of these years, Britain would colonize or greatly influence the likes of modern-day India, Pakistan, Burma, modern-day South Africa, Egypt, Guyana, Niger, Bahrain, Hong Kong, present-day Malaysia, Borneo, Singapore, Cyprus, Australia, New Zealand, modern-day Papua New Guinea, Fiji, and respectively, it had the largest sphere of influence in China. This period, known as the Pax Britannica, was just a period where Britain was just supreme. But it's different in the way that maybe America uh, could show its power because Great Britain has always been a small island nation. So their power never felt as definitive as, say, that of America. This because Great Britain never had this giant army that could, you know, impose its will. It, it never could do that just because of population limits. So it had to be a lot more diplomatic about how it exerted its influence. And also having an extremely strong navy was pretty helpful as well. The beginning of the end of the Pax Britannica could have its roots in the 1850s when other countries started to rise. So we already talked about America's economic rise, but France had refound its desire to colonize countries, uh, as shown in its conquest of Mexico for a short period of time. Uh, Germany, there was some ideas of well, unification, but they were, regardless, the independent states of Germany uh, were all going through an industrialization period. Russia was going through modernization, and we'll go into more detail here shortly about the rise of these other guys. But for the moment, let's look at Britain. So Great Britain in 1860 was having some real internal questions um, for itself, mainly that of male becoming more of a democracy. So we briefly mentioned this idea that Britain was against the idea of, well, the plebes having the vote, but they would slowly get the vote. In 1867, they would get roughly double more electorate allowed to vote, um, and not just the aristocrats. And that would just be the continual steps that Britain would take until it was a full-blown democracy on parity with that of the United States. But this time period was also uh, known as the Great Depression, which was the period of the 1870s in Great Britain. Now, we have the Great Depression in modern days, uh, which refers to the 1930s, uh, but prior to that, this was the Great Depression. And it wasn't an economic depression like the 1930s was, where the economy was literally shrinking. It was just that all these other countries were just growing so fast, it seemed that Great Britain was being left behind. I just want to take a moment to go through all these countries' individual rises because unlike the modern-day rise of China, which is happening 
in a vacuum for the most part. The rise of these other countries in the late 19th century were all happening at the same time, and it put Great Britain in a bit of a conundrum, uh, which is unlike what we're dealing with today. So it's important that we add a little bit of information about the problems that they faced. So we can start with Germany. Um, so for my American listeners out there, I think you might find it interesting, but Germany wasn't even a unified state until 1871. Um, and it quickly grew into an economic and military threat. With a population in excess of the United Kingdom, it also found itself with a colonial itch as it ventured into Africa, well, with the rest of Europe. Germany's real interest, though, lay elsewhere, as Bismarck, its founder, uh, so famously said to a young explorer who had returned from Africa, quote, your map of Africa is really quite nice, but my map of Africa lies in Europe. Here is Russia, and here is France, and we're in the middle. That's my map of Africa, end quote. That is a not-so-subtle allusion to this idea that Germans' interests lie in Europe, and I guess the colonization of Europe, if you will. Uh, and so this new German menace was keen on being the hegemon in Europe, and after its victory over France in the Franco-Prussian War, it formed an alliance in 1882 with Austria-Hungary and recently unified Italy. And when they wanted to be a continental hegemon, it didn't seem that unlikely considering, well, its strong allies and its own dominance economically with its large population. Britain had always been dead set against the unified Europe, under any power, because the British Isles were only 42 kilometers from continental Europe, a very short distance for a very small island. As Churchill would put it in World War II, quote, For 400 years, the foreign policy of England has been to oppose the strongest, most aggressive, most dominating power on the continent, and that was beginning to show that it was Germany. Next, we have the French, whom had rediscovered an old hobby of theirs, that of colonization, specifically in that of Africa and Asia. The colonies of France were often adjacent to the territories of Great Britain, which is somewhat understandable when Europe is attempting to colonize the whole damn world. The problem here is that the territories often had undefined borders, and Britain and France, whom were colonizing these countries at the same time, often had to vie for spheres of influence in order to claim those colonies. It's easy to see how this could turn into something more than just a battle for spheres of influence and instead into a hot war, which it almost did on multiple occasions. Next, we have Russia, who was modernizing at this time period, but it was also continuing to expand past its borders. Now, an important thing to remember here is that Russia is massive, and this was at a time period where land was equated with strength because that was primarily how a country could get its strength. You needed to have an industrial base, but if you had the resources within your own country, that made you powerful. And if you had a lot of people, that made you even more powerful. Therefore, Russia was quite powerful. With that, the Russians were expanding into Central and Eastern Asia and threatening the English crown jewel of its empire, that of India. The Russians were also invading the Balkans, and this was during a time period where they had something called Pan-Slavism. Slavs are a race of people, and the idea was that they would create a state for Slavs, and the Balkans had Slavs, and that would mean that Russia could expand its influence into Europe and the Mediterranean. The Balkans were underneath the domain of the Ottoman Empire, which was located on the Mediterranean in modern-day Turkey, and after an embarrassing treaty was signed by the Ottomans in 1878, uh, the countries of Bulgaria, Serbia, and Montenegro became autonomous and were essentially client states of Russia, making this idea of pan-Slavism seem realistic, and Russia slowly encroached onto Western Europe. Something else surprising occurred at this period of time. Germany, Austria-Hungary, and Russia agreed to an informal alliance called the Three Emperors League in 1871, making them de facto allies 
So let's just summarize this. We've got Russia threatening the Mediterranean and India, which is the crown jewel of the British Empire. France is jockeying for dominance in Africa and Asia at the expense of Great Britain. And Germany is looking to dominate continental Europe. All three countries have numerically larger populations, they have larger land areas, and they have more abundant natural resources at home. Great Britain does have colonial possessions and the strongest navy. But if you knock out that navy, those colonial possessions might as well be on Mars. They won't do you much good. So Great Britain felt threatened, and it rightfully so. It is perhaps best exemplified by something called the Naval Defense Act of 1889, which created this policy of the two-power standard, which said that Great Britain had to have a navy at least twice as large as the next two largest navies combined. This naval act was rather emblematic of how Europe was operating at the time, which is just like in the state of fear. Even though these countries had these alliances, they weren't necessarily strong by any means. The countries just didn't really trust each other. Which is terrible considering, well, what other cultural norms were becoming deeply associated with Europe at the time. Everyone had these deeply militaristic undertones with this idea of colonial expansion and empire and war was romanticized. And it really did seem like that war could be a possibility between any of these states with each other. I mean, you could pick and choose whom would fight whom. And you could make the case for why that would happen. And unlike these three other countries, whom are all forming a series of alliances with each other in some regard, Great Britain wasn't. It kind of seemed like the odd man out, and it left Great Britain alone, which gave way to this idea that, well, Great Britain needed to make a friend or two with someone. And they did attempt to make friends with one or all of these uh, countries um, at one time or another, but none of them really worked out. The whole point of this about Great Britain's rise and then Great Britain's fall from grace as the other countries rise and form alliances, seemingly against Great Britain in most cases, is that Great Britain is alone. And that's an important thing to understand in 1890, is that Great Britain is alone. And that changes how it's going to think about, well, another country rising. Because the 1890s, this last decade of the 19th century, will be America's coming out party to the world stage. There seem to be moments where countries kind of like, well, come out of the woodwork and show their true prowess. For example, in 2008, China's Olympics, um, the Summer Olympics in Beijing, it was a impressive feat. Building what they built, the, the opening ceremonies and everything like that, truly people were overwhelmed with what China was capable of, especially the infrastructure and the buildings that they had built. And Germany did it actually similarly uh, prior to World War II in the Olympics in Berlin. I like to think America's coming out event would have to be the World Columbian Exposition in Chicago in 1893, where over 27 million visitors came to see what America had to offer. And America revealed at the time things such as Juicy Fruit, Paps Blue Ribbon, Aunt Jemima Pancake Mix. Truly some impressive things were unveiled. Joking aside, but the fair truly was a technological marvel. The electrification of the whole fair with light bulbs in the alternating current uh, presented by Westinghouse, people from Europe would come to this affair, and most of them have never seen electricity, and yet you have an entire 700 acres, a square mile of just electrified city that was built in the last six months. It showed what America was capable of, and it really brought upon this American optimism for what they were capable of because everyone was just so astounded by what the Americans had to show. I think this is that moment where America realized that it was capable of great things, that it was not some lesser power to the European 
conventional powers that had so ruled the world for the past centuries. But there was a new player in town, and it was from the Western Hemisphere, and it was the United States of America. And America started to feel its economic strength, and that started to translate into other things. You might not be familiar with the term jingo, and if you're not, you're not going to be alone. It sounds like some kind of old-timey insult. But in fact, it's the definition of a ferocious supporter of a policy favoring war, especially in the name of patriotism. Now, the jingos in America were a growing faction in American politics come 1895, and eventually they would take power and would forever change the face of America. Now, to say that expansionism was this new idea in America is obviously ludicrous. America had been expanding since its inception in 1776, from its original boundaries of the 13 territories, the Ohio Territory, to Louisiana Purchase, to the land accumulated from the, the Mexican-American War, to the purchase of Alaska. Well, it's nothing new. Uh, and plus, if you want to consider the fact that this land did belong to the Native Americans, well, America had been colonizing territory for quite some time. But this time, it's kind of unique. So in the 1890s, something kind of interesting happens. America was rather fortunate in the fact that, well, when it wanted to expand, it just had to look westward. And it wasn't necessarily that the land was well owned by other people. It was the fact that the land wasn't really contentious. You did have Mexican ownership of it, although it was still very slightly inhabited. Um, and then you know, the Native Americans, um, which is a whole other issue, which I'm not going to deal with. But the fact is, a lot of this expansionist attitude that was so prevalent in Europe was prevalent in America. It's just that the America could just go west, and it didn't really have to infringe on other people's well, territory. But this would end in 1890 when the U.S. Census Bureau would officially close the American frontier. They deemed that there was no more Wild West as it had been so known for the better half of the century. The last major battle against the Native Americans would happen in 1890 in the Battle of Wounded Knee, which was probably closer to a massacre than a battle, but nonetheless, it did seem that the Wild West and the frontier was no longer wild, and it was no longer frontier, but rather it was, well, agricultural land is waiting to be plowed. There's an argument here to be made that that's the reason why America looked beyond its shores uh, for further well, colonization. Because, well, when the West was closed in 1890, well, just a few short years later, they were looking around and deciding that, hey, maybe we'll uh, go get that piece of land. But that desire to go beyond its continental borders would lead it to confronting other nations. And this is where Great Britain gets tested. And it's worth mentioning here that in the 1880s, Great Britain essentially drew up a list of all the countries that were going to be a threat to Great Britain. We've already gone through most of them. But it seems that America ended up at the bottom of that list as far as, you know, threat level goes. Because America was such an isolationist country with no inclination to go colonize Asia or expand in continental Europe, it just made sense to make America an ally. Although it was really difficult considering America was so isolationist. In order to be friends with the country, usually you have to, well, help them out in some regard. Well, it was hard to help America, well, when America didn't really care about what was happening outside of its borders, except for that of trade. But the 1890s would be a period where Great Britain could show that Great Britain would be a great friend to America, because when America stepped outside its bounds, Great Britain could help in some ways, and in others it could make sacrifices in hopes to quell American ambition and encourage a British and American relationship. The first time the United States really stepped up onto the world stage and confronted Great Britain was over something regarding the Monroe Doctrine. 
Now, the Monroe Doctrine is something we talked about earlier. It was a policy the United States had implemented which imposed European colonization of the Americas following the independence of the Latin American countries from Spain and Portugal in the earlier portion of the 19th century. As mentioned earlier, the doctrine stipulated that any actions against an independent state would be viewed as an unfriendly disposition towards the United States, a.k.a. America could retaliate with force. The doctrine, which was brought about in 1823, was hollow at the time, if you'll recall, and the British were the ones enforcing it for the most part. But this whole kind of changed in 1895, however, because, well, the idea of American enforcement now, rather than then, uh, wasn't so ludicrous. This came into play when there was something regarding, well, Venezuela. So Venezuela gained its independence from Spain in 1811, and there was a disputed boundary line between British Guiana uh, and Venezuela, which was the adjacent country. The British had sent surveyors out in 1840 in hopes of resolving this unresolved boundary, but the Venezuelans were in no hurry to figure it out. It wasn't really important land, and it wasn't really inhabited. This is a really common theme when it comes to, well, kind of gray boundary lines. No one really wants to solve the contested land boundaries. That is until it matters, and when it matters, it usually is heated because, well, it matters. This contested piece of land in Venezuela and British Guiana started to matter in 1876, when luck would have it, gold was found in that area. Initially, the Venezuelans called for an arbitration to be sent to an international panel for a resolve. Uh, however, the British refused the international panels of the day, I suppose, typically like to split everything down the middle 50-50, kind of like your mom would do with your siblings. So that was out the door for the British, considering they thought they had more of a right to this land than the Venezuelans did. So because the British wouldn't agree to an arbitration, the Venezuelans decided to do something a little unique. They called on America to enforce the Monroe Doctrine, because this could potentially be seen as an attempt by the British to recolonize the Western Hemisphere, which would be against the Monroe Doctrine and therefore against the United States. This is interesting also because, well, the British at this point in time had been enforcing the Monroe Doctrine for most of the century. To give the Venezuelans a little bit of credit here, this wasn't completely baseless. So there was real concern that South America was going to get colonized. This is a time period where Great, or Great Britain and the rest of Europe were trying to colonize pretty much the whole world. You just had the race for Africa, which resulted in the near 100% colonization of the whole continent in the span of 20 years or so. China and Asia were going through a similar colonization effort. So the idea that South America was exempt wasn't completely irrational. The Europeans had tried such efforts previously. Uh, in particular, the French had attempted a coup in Brazil in hoping to gain power and it was with the help of the Americans uh, that that was deterred. So after Venezuela called for the Americans to act, in thanks in part to a lobbyist in D.C. argue on behalf of Venezuela, seems that some things don't change, lobbyists still have power, Grover Cleveland, then the president of the United States, agreed with Venezuela and proposed something called Resolution 252, uh, which recommended that Venezuela and the U.K. settle the dispute by arbitration. The vote was unanimous in the United States Congress. Around the same time period that the United States was passing that resolution, Great Britain actually occupied a port in Nicaragua, which could be seen as an invasion, in hopes of forcing the Venezuelans to come to an agreement with the British. This was probably a poor decision on the British's part, because they have a lot of levers for exerting their power, and choosing such a crude one could be interpreted as colonization, which is how the Americans interpreted it. 
So in July 1895, the Secretary of State sent a statement to London decreeing that London must recognize the Monroe Doctrine, which Great Britain essentially did, and by decree agree to an international arbitration. And quote, today, the United States is practically sovereign on this continent in its fiat law upon the subjects to which it confines its interposition. End quote. The British, as mentioned earlier, helped establish the Monroe Doctrine, but how Great Britain always fits into this has always been kind of murky, especially when you consider Canadian possessions and, well, boundary issues. But in this example, sending actual troops into Nicaragua and seizing ports, well, it was a little too much for America to stomach. Britain thought America's request was unpalatable, though, considering, like we mentioned earlier, an international arbitration would likely lead to a 50-50 decision, which the British thought were thought was unfair. As such, Great Britain refused America's request, so the ante was upped and America responded in kind. Grover Cleveland, in a speech to Congress on December 17, 1895, essentially uh, gave his own retort to the British. And it's a lengthy speech, but this is the important part. Quote, The dispute has reached such a stage as to make it now incumbent upon the United States to take a measures to determine with sufficient certainty for its justification what is the true divisional line between the Republic of Venezuela and British Guiana. End quote. America was going to insert herself into the debate one way or another. The following day, the New York Times front page article read, quote, Preparations for war. Countries aroused. Want to fight England. End quote. Teddy Roosevelt, then he, the header of the New York City Police Commission, wrote Senator Lodge, quote, I do hope that there will not be any backdown among our people. Let the fight come if it must. I don't care whether our seacoast cities are bombarded or not. We could take Canada. End quote. So this essentially was what America was going for. America still didn't really have the Navy to confront Britain. And so if Britain did invade Venezuela, there was very little America could do other than maybe march some troops down through Central America. But what America could do was, you know, put a little pressure on the best pressure valve that America has for Britain, which would be that of Canada to the north. An invasion of Canada would be a great deterrent, and in fact, it would be welcome. I think America at this time period would be more than happy to sacrifice while a boundary issue with Venezuela for the conquering of America's beautiful, snowy neighbor. This proved to be enough of a deterrent uh, for the British to back down from their initial, well, antipathy towards having an international arbitration, because now they just regarded that as, well, the best-case situation, because losing Canada over something as silly as this wasn't really worth it in the British's eyes. The Venezuelan crisis, though, would push America and Great Britain closer because after this whole ordeal, Great Britain actually proposed that the United States sign a treaty stating that disagreements such as this one should be handled in international arbitration rather than be dealt with with, well, force. Although the American Congress refused to ratify the treaty, it was seen as being popular, even though this was mostly just because America had, at this point in time, always just seen treaties as, well, something that was in opposition to what our founders proposed in our country, that we shouldn't make treaties with, well, foreign countries, and especially those of Europe. And because of this sentiment, it seemed that America and Great Britain were starting to fall more in line, and, well, in at least this instance, Great Britain respected America's authority. And the fact that America even considered, you know, handling such issues via international arbitration rather than with force is, well, that doesn't seem that unusual to us today, but it was very unusual back in the day. Considering the military monarchies of Europe and the capitalistic and democratic nature of both America and Great Britain, it made the English Channel seem very wide and the Atlantic seem very narrow. 
This was the first step in the rapprochement, but it also was a very sobering moment for Great Britain, which was probably best summarized by Britain's first Lord of the Admiralty when describing the defense of Canada as, quote, absolutely hopeless, end quote. He recommended it to the government, quote, use all possible means to avoid such a war. It seems an utter waste of time to prepare for it, end quote. The British were a lot of things, but they certainly were pragmatic. The other realization that the British had was that, well, if America was willing to go to war with the preeminent world superpower over something as stupid as this whole Venezuelan boundary issue, it could probably trust that America would, well, go to war for something that might be more serious. For example, maybe Germany would try and recolonize portions of South America. The fact that America and Great Britain wanted the same thing for South America, which was for it to be uncolonized by European powers, well, that dovetailing of interest allowed Great Britain to move naval assets away from the Western Hemisphere because now Great Britain knew that America was willing to go to a certain amount of ends to ensure that the paradigm doesn't shift, ensuring that there's not some great colonization of South America. The Venezuelan affair really established that America was going to fight for its sphere of influence. America threatened to fight, but would it actually fight? Well, that's what we'll find out in this next event. So there's probably one place that America wanted more to annex than Canada, and that was her beautiful southern cigar-smoking neighbor, Cuba, an island nation just 90 miles away from Florida. It was seen as a strategic asset in defense of the Gulf states, and also America didn't want to see it fall in the hands of any foreign power, although it was under control of the Spanish at the time. Spain might have fit the definition of foreign at the time, but it really wasn't a power, at least compared to the, well, the big powers of Europe in the day. America had at times considered conquering or purchasing the island. Underneath President Polk in the late 1840s, the U.S. actually offered to pay $100 million for the island. But the Spanish officials replied in kind, quote, Sooner than see Cuba transferred to any power, we would prefer to see it sunk into the ocean, end quote, which is just rude. Luckily for America, Cuban people didn't seem all that happy under Spanish rule, and this was a time when America believed that self-determination was a very important thing. America was a high-minded country. Uh, Cuba had featured uprising in the past uh, regarding their unhappiness about Spanish rule, and America was more than happy to denounce Spain when these things occurred, but they didn't really involve itself in the foreign country's politics. In 1895, however, Cuba's third insurrection, and the largest of all of them, caught the eye of the Jingos, those warmongers in America. One of the latter voices pushing for war with Spain to give Cuba its independence was none other than the great progressive Teddy Roosevelt. Between Jingoist politicians and yellow journalism, the fake news of its day, there was a great push for war with Spain. Although the pretenses was to grant Cuba the right to self-determination and make it a free state, it did seem that America had the inclination to make this, well, the next American state. Although there was a strong imperialist desire from some in America, it wasn't quite unanimous. America still had these high-minded ideals, and a large part of the country didn't want to emulate the European powers, in particular that of Great Britain. In fact, to make this really clear, the Kingdom of Hawaii, which is now a state of America's, uh, their independent government was overthrown by a combination of American farmers, business interests, and eventually U.S. Marines. A government consisting mainly of Americans was formed as the Republic of Hawaii, who sought annexation by the United States. Even after direct American support in the conflict, uh, the desire of the new Hawaiian Republic to be annexed, uh, well, America still refused. Grover Cleveland was president at the time, and his feelings, along with the majority of America, could best be surmised by, quote, in his State of the Union address in 1893. 
quote, substantial wrong has been done with a due regard for our national character as well as the rights of the injured people requires we should endeavor to repair the monarchy, end quote, a.k.a. the Americans should reestablish the monarchy that, well, America helped overthrow. American opinion about intervention would change rather abruptly, though. On February 15, 1898, the USS Maine spontaneously exploded in Cuba's harbor, where it had been positioned to protect American interest in Cuba. The immediate response was a loud chorus of calls to war against Spain, even though the causes of the explosion were not yet known. The yellow journalists of the day, the fake news, and their jingoist partners in the Senate pushed for war nonetheless. America wasn't going to let something as trivial as fact set back her imperial ambitions. The day after the explosion, there were journalistic reports with headlines such as, quote, destruction of the warship Maine was the work of the enemy, end quote, and, quote, the whole country thrills with war fever, end quote. Their calls were strong and they were certainly getting more favor, but it wasn't yet unanimous. The McKinley administration, who was president at the time, called for an official investigation to the explosion of the Maine. And on March 21st, the U.S. Naval Court declared that a naval mine had caused the explosion, a.k.a. the Spanish. The Spanish had actually held their own inspection of the explosion, and they found that it was due to an interior explosion. And that was actually found to be the truth after uh, another study was performed in 1977 into the cause of the explosion of the Maine. So just a little note here. It was a well-known design flaw that these ships had their coal bunkers and the power magazines next to each other, with only a really small uh, flimsy wall separating the two. Interestingly, one member of the Navy Court that ruled that the explosion was due to a mine uh, was Captain F.E. Chadwick, who passed the judgment against Spain. And right after he casted that judgment, he installed an extra steel bulkhead between the coal bunker and the power magazine on his own battleship. I'm not saying that the little tribunal was corrupt. It's just concerning timing. Anyway, the ambassadors from Austria, Hungary, Germany, France, Italy, and Russia were all urging moderation following the sinking of the USS Maine. However, the British were a lot more quiet about it, although they did say don't do it, but it was, I guess, like a whisper. At this time, pretty much the only people against war was President McKinley and Speaker of the House Thomas Reed, who were well, going to be key figures in declaring war. The American public, though, supported war, and Congress looked like they were going to vote for war regardless of whether they had the support of the President or the Speaker of the House. So, not to be beat by the punch and be left behind, on April 11th, McKinley ended his resistance and asked Congress for authority to send American troops to Cuba to end the Civil War there, knowing that Congress would force a war anyway. Because this fight was only about Cuban independence, America didn't go around attacking Spain's other assets around the world because that would be wrong. But that's exactly what America did. So America had actually already drawn up plans to attack Spain's other holdings prior to the war, prior to the sinking of the USS Maine. Teddy Roosevelt, then the Assistant Secretary of the Navy, actually had deployed uh, naval assets to the Pacific in preparations for a well, battle with the Spanish fleet, uh, which was positioned in Manila Bay in the Philippines. So America was quite ready for when this war broke out. And so the United States Navy attacked the Philippines on May 1st, Guam on June 28th, Puerto Rico on July 25th, and they had invaded Cuba beginning in late June. Although the British were technically, quote, neutral, it was far from it. During the course of the war, Great Britain helped America and hurt the Spanish throughout the entire conflict. The British sold coal to the U.S. Navy during the war. It allowed America to use its submarine cables in order to communicate. 
And most astonishingly, the United States' is, uh, flanks were exposed during the naval attack on Manila Bay. And the British uh, ended up protecting those flanks because there was concerns that Germany would interfere on behalf of the Spanish in order to prevent America from, well, taking all of these colonies away from Spain. This is in contrast with the Spanish, whom, when they sought to resupply their fleet in Egypt, which was controlled by the British, they were denied access and turned away. The war lasted less than four months before Spain capitulated. It is often referred to as the Splendid Little War. Uh, in the treaty, America got to keep Guam, Puerto Rico, and the Philippines. The U.S. didn't annex Cuba, but this is largely because the United States Congress passed an amendment which uh, said that America could not take possession of Cuba, although America would strongly influence Cuba, making it essentially a client state. Following the quick defeat of Spain and America's inheritance of its possession, it seemed that America had become an empire by default. No one really thought this was going to happen or that it would be so easy. President McKinley was even surprised. After America gained possession of the Philippines, uh, President McKinley remarked, Quote, when I realized the Philippines had dropped into our laps, I confess I did not know what to do with them. He also confessed to a friend that he couldn't point to where they were on a map within 2,000 miles. I believe to this day Americans might still have this problem. The American victory over the Spanish and the taking of her territories brought America onto the world stage by defeating a European power handily and becoming an empire. To make this period even more glorious for the American imperialist, Hawaii was also annexed on July 7th, 1898, smack dab in the middle of the conflict. The Americans weren't guaranteed a victory in this war, but America and Spain could be seen as racehorses, and Great Britain backed the American horse in this race, which turned out to be a good bet, but actually going into this war, especially that of the invasion of Manila Bay, there was some thoughts that America's navy just couldn't hold its own with its European peers. That obviously wasn't the case. But nonetheless, essentially the only country that was on the side of America in this conflict was Great Britain. All the other countries, for the most part, either stood neutral or was Spain. And it drove a wedge between the continental European powers and that of the British, who seemed to be now trying to turn its back on Europe even though it didn't really have much of an alliance system there anyway, and looking across the Atlantic and creating something of a, well, an Anglosphere. America started to share those feelings with the British. They kind of started seeing Great Britain as an ally after this whole ordeal. And there's two ways that America kind of expressed that. One was that Great Britain at this time period was involved in a terribly bloody conflict in South Africa called the Boer War. It was a guerrilla war, kind of similar to what we see in Afghanistan today. And a lot of European powers were calling for a settlement of that because what they saw Great Britain doing down there seemed to be something similar to human rights abuses. But America stayed largely absent. The second thing America did, which I think is more noteworthy, is the fact that when Queen Victoria died in 1901, the House representatives adjourned and President McKinley had the flags lowered to half-staff a tribute which had never been offered to a foreign head of state. I feel like only 20 years ago, America would have been singing songs about the queen is dead, the queen is dead, and yet now they mourn with the British. No longer their enemy, but maybe their ally. And this leads us into the third and final part of the trilogy. This is the nail in the coffin for what is the great reproachment that Great Britain did for America. After this one, well, they're pretty much on good terms for the most part. So this last problem is similar to that one that we talked about regarding Venezuela. 
Uh, it has its root in unsettled territory. So when America purchased Alaska from Russia back in 1867, the defined boundaries of the purchase were obscure to say the least. The most undefined portion, if you were to look at a map of Alaska, is the southeast edge, which strangely protrudes into modern-day British Columbia, which is part of Canada. There's a reason for this, and that reason is America being, well, somewhat aggressive. There's a little bit of a dirty story behind this little jut, and behind the Alaskan purchase for that matter. So when America purchased Alaska in 1867, the Treaty of George Washington in 1871, which settled those claims regarding the CSS Alabama and the sinking of Union ships that was built by the British, uh, we, as you, if you'll recall from earlier. But anyway, so America had sought the succession of Canada as a payment for those damages caused by the British. It was thought with the purchase of Alaska, the United States would have a better claim for British Columbia and maybe perhaps Canada altogether. The Treaty of Washington didn't provide British Columbia to America. The ill-defined border, however, stayed that way, and it became extremely relevant in 1896 when, not unlike Venezuela, gold was discovered. So you might be familiar with some gold rushes in America's history. So the most famous being the California Gold Rush in 1849, which resulted in the naming of the American football team, the San Francisco 49ers. Uh, the second most famous was the Klondike Gold Rush up here in Alaska that we're talking about. And it resulted in the naming of the ice cream sandwich, the Klondike Bar, which is almost as notable. The gold rush resulted in nearly 100,000 prospectors arriving in the region. And it's worth noting here that they were mostly Americans, giving America a demographic argument. This is a territory that was, for the most part, sparsely populated. So if the territory is heavily populated by your people, you have a better argument for it. Anyway, so as the land had contested value, there was going to be an argument over who owned it. So the U.S. claimed that they had ownership over the sea lanes because they said that, well, they had they were the ones that owned access to the ocean. However, the Canadians had access to the, or sorry, uh, was said to own the land. America said because they owned the sea lanes, which was the only way you could access the territory, the land should be theirs. While Canada said, well, the land is ours, but because we don't have access to the sea lanes, we should have something similar to an easement or something along those lines. Teddy Roosevelt, our jingoist fellow that we were talking about earlier, was now president, and he actually sought an arbitration, which occurred in 1902 and 1903. The United States, under Teddy Roosevelt, wanted an even-numbered tribunal, three Americans and three British Canadians. This might seem obvious, but it seemed that the most likely outcome would be a tie, which was actually the intention of Teddy Roosevelt. To make his logic more clear is probably best served by a message delivered to London. So Teddy Roosevelt asked that Oliver Wendell Holmes, a Supreme Court justice, whom was actually visiting London uh, just prior to this arbitration, to deliver a message, quote, I shall take a position which will prevent any possibility of arbitration hereafter, end quote. He also was asked to make it even more abundantly clear that if agreement couldn't be reached in this tribunal, the U.S. would be forced to, quote, act in a way which would necessarily wound British pride, end quote. Essentially, what the Americans were saying was that, well, we're going to get this land one way or another. The first way that they would do it was that if there was a tie, the United States would seize the land by force. The second way in which they would do it was that if there was a, well, three Americans, the British should elect someone that would vote in favor of America. And therefore, Great Britain could say, well, it was just America's property to begin with, and we're just acting rationally, and it's theirs. Even though the tribunal was supposed to be, well, staffed by people that could be 
bipartisan and unbiased, well, that wasn't exactly what America did. Based on the staffing, the United States chose three judges whom would undoubtedly vote in favor of the U.S. The Canadians did somewhat likewise with their two, and the last vote was given to a Brit. So Great Britain was put in a corner. They could either risk a confrontation over contested territory, which really didn't matter that much, to them at least, um, which could lead to a minor confrontation or it could grow into something way more menacing, perhaps an invasion of Canada. There was another option. Great Britain could sacrifice Canada. This was an appealing option. Great Britain trying to court America right now, and it seems necessary that Great Britain take the steps to avoid violence from breaking out and perhaps losing a colony. In the end, Britain threw Canada right under the bus, and the British juror on the case voted in favor of America in all areas. And now America has that weird little jut into British Columbia. It's kind of funny when you think about it. So you have Canada and America who are two very different offspring of Great Britain. They were both colonies at one time or presently, and Canada did everything right. And America fought two wars against its parent nation and was always considering conquering its uh, other colony, Canada, to the north. And what does Canada get in return for such loyalty? Backstabbed by mum. Unlike the other events, which involved sacrifices of different measures but this one was a little unique. So, like, in the Spanish-American War, Great Britain had to, you know, turn a cold shoulder to, well, continental Europe. But in this case, Canada was a part of Great Britain, or United Kingdom. It was part of the, the Commonwealth. It was part of the Empire. And they got thrown under the bus to appease America, which is kind of interesting. So, like, to draw a parallel here, it'd be like, for example, think of, like, Japan and China have these disputed islands. And could you imagine if America said, okay, that's fine. You guys, China can have the islands. Japan, you're just going to have to chill out about this and let it go. Which is essentially what they asked the Canadians to do because Canada was actually extremely upset about this decision. And rightfully so. It seemed that they got backstabbed. And that's kind of what we got from this whole, uh, well, the Yukon Territory dispute was that Great Britain was willing to sacrifice countries, or I guess colonies, that are part of itself in order to appease America, hoping that this would be, you know, one of the last little acts of aggression that they would have, which is, again, a huge gamble. Who's to say that it stops here? And finally, we find ourselves at the reproachment, where it mostly consists of dotting the I's and crossing the T's to finalize the goodwill between the two countries. And this is where Great Britain got kind of lucky. America, uh, after it took hold of the Philippines in the Spanish-American War, was forced to deal with a very bloody civil war. The Philippines were originally fighting a war against the Spanish, but when America won and took over the Philippines and colonized them, well, the Filipinos started fighting a civil war against that of the Americans. They were fighting for their freedom. The war was a bloody guerrilla-type war, with the Filipinos devastating the American troops on the island and the Americans retaliating in a fashion that could be seen as immoral oftentimes massacring large amounts of civilians. Uh, well, it was just a bad affair. So coupled with the fact that America saw itself as this shining light that proposed that all countries have the right to self-governance and plus the large amount of casualties, Americans asked what the heck they were doing there. And that was pretty much the end of America's colonial itch. But America was still involved now in the Western Hemisphere. In fact, more so because Great Britain was starting to well, allow America to operate more with impunity because, well, Great Britain was kind of forfeiting the hemisphere to America. 
And this is kind of shown uh, during the, well, the second Venezuelan crisis, which began in 1902. The matter at hand was due to the fact that Venezuela owed a large amount of money to Great Britain and Germany. In response, the two nations, Germany and Great Britain, blockaded Venezuela. Originally, the United States was okay with this because, well, the countries were just trying to collect their debt, not trying to colonize. Although, it was a little bit messier than that after Great Britain landed troops at one port, which originally was fine, but when there were talks of Germany doing the same, well, America reacted. It sent its own fleet to Venezuela and told the Germans to back down, threatening war if the Germans landed, and asked the British to politely pull out. An invasion didn't occur, and America got what it wanted. The case was later arbitrated by an international court. Because of this whole incident, Roosevelt proposed something called the Roosevelt Corollary, which stated that if any European country had any kind of grievance with a Latin American country, revolving mostly around that of debt or other commercial problems, instead of interfering directly, the United States would get involved and act as an arbiter, rather than have the Europeans act um, by themselves. This idea, rather surprisingly, actually pleased the British. Because they filled such a role around the globe, acting as an agent whom dealt with such problems in countries that it colonized or had a strong influence, well, this only solidified the British decision to allow America to have its own sphere of influence while in the Western Hemisphere. Because of this, the British no longer saw America as a threat, but rather as an ally, as two international policemen. Because of this, Britain actually excluded America from the two-power standard, if you'll recall from earlier, Great Britain actually had set up a standard that said it must have a navy as large as the next two largest navies combined. Well, at this point in time, America was excluded from being held to that. Anglo-American cooperation became a deciding factor for how Great Britain governed the world. As the Earl of Selborne, whom was in charge of the Admiralty in 1904, would remark, quote, The principal aim of the British foreign policy was friendship with America more so than the preservation of the empire, and considered war with the United States of America as the greatest evil which could befall the British Empire, end quote. So what's the takeaway from all of this? Well, Great Britain sees America as a co-conspirator in its, well, desire to hold dominion over most of the world, and it's quite okay with America having dominion over, well, the other parts of the world that it does not have dominion over. This is going to be an important caveat, and we'll see why here shortly. But when a country does reproach another country, you make these sacrifices, which Great Britain did to America, and you hope that it makes those the, the other countries' interests dovetail with yours. So you never even have to like make sacrifices. You just simply want the same thing because you know they're like friends inside of each other's head. Who knows what the other's thinking? That's not often the case. Although countries seem to do it, and Great Britain does it right now. The assumption is that America will want the same thing as Great Britain, and I wonder sometimes if Great Britain would have made the same decisions that it had made over these past few years, if it had known what the future would hold. Although it's not a bloody future, it wasn't this like G2 kind of thing where America and Great Britain would be you know, insurmountable allies whom would always have each other's back, because that just wasn't the case. America would have different desires. And this is probably just a small price to pay, considering, well, instead of going to war, uh, they're now friends rather than enemies and fighting each other to death, which is often the case. So all in all, I would say this has been a great success. However, I just want to lay this out because interests don't always align, 
And when they don't, sometimes, well, even the great reproachment of America and Great Britain can be tested. Things fall apart. That is the summary for what happens next. So the events that will come um, will be the end of the reproachment, and it will test whether America and Great Britain are even friends. So the end of the 19th century could be considered the first era of globalization, with Western powers colonizing good chunks of the world and international trade expanding with it, and the world became a much smaller place. But the 20th century, at least the beginning of it, would prove Bismarck right, uh, the unifier of Germany, whom had famously said that the map of Africa for Germany lay in Europe. Bismarck was right. The European powers who had colonized so much of the world would fight a war within Europe itself and ravage the continent. Now, America would get involved at some point, but it wouldn't happen until 1917. Its main activity for most of the war was that of financing and providing the means to wage war. So prior to the war, 63% of American exports went to countries that were allied with Great Britain. During the war, that portion would grow to 80% of all American exports. And that is in part due to the fact that Great Britain and France blockaded Germany. Therefore, they could not receive American imports. So U.S. exports to Europe rose from $1.479 billion in 1913 to $4.062 billion in 1917. That's quite an increase in just four years. And this is with America not exporting any goods to Europe. And this made it more palatable for the Americans to be blockaded from trading with what they saw as a neutral power to them. And this is going to be an important thing to remember. But for the time being, it seemed tolerable because Great Britain and its allies were importing so many goods from the United States that it made up for the lack of trade with Germany. Additionally, Great Britain would end up financing most of the war effort for its allies. And by 1916, it was funding all of Italy's war bills and two-thirds of the war bills for France and Russia, uh, plus smaller nations as well. The British were forced to borrow $4 billion from the U.S. Treasury in 1917 and 18 to fund the war. The debt that Great Britain would accumulate would finally be paid off in full in 2015. Yes, 2015. The war was devastating. It stole nearly three-quarters of a million men from the United Kingdom, or about 2% of the population. An additional 1,675,000 were wounded. Great Britain would never be the same after the war, and the Pax Britannica could officially be deemed over, at least from our historical perspective. America would eventually enter the war after Germany's unrestricted submarine warfare campaign against American ships, but the final stroke really was with this thing called the Zimmerman, Cab Zimmerman Cable, which was a cable asking Mexico to invade the southern United States, and in return, after America, Great Britain, and France were beat... Uh, Mexico could reclaim its possessions it had lost during the Mexican-American War, including that of California, New Mexico, Arizona, Texas, and such. Due to such events, the United States came into the war on behalf of the, well, Allied powers, in part because of that, but also because America and Great Britain had already had such established relations, not just in the business community, but also uh, politically as well, which this made America and Great Britain natural allies during the war. It did not hurt in the fact that the Zimmerman Cable was actually provided to the Americans by the British. America's entry would be the last push needed to get the Germans to back down, not necessarily because America just had such a great force that was relevant in the war, but more so the fact that America had such great potential that Germany knew that victory was just not possible. The war would end in 1918 uh, via the Treaty of Versailles, 
And this is where America and Great Britain, well, parted ways. The British ruled world, uh, when it was, well, the epicenter of the world, uh, its points of emphasis were that a political balancing of the European powers, no country should be too great, acquisition of colonies for economic gain, uh, preferential trading within the empire, and then open trade and investment outside of it. And then finally, military enforcement of its economic policies. So this is where America lays at its foundation for its ideal world, and this was best laid out by President Woodrow Wilson, whom was president during World War I and laid out something called his 14 points at the Treaty of Versailles. Wilson called for a peaceful capitalist world order governed by international law with no imperialism or revolutionary socialism. Essentially, what the Americans wanted was free trade, open seas, open politics, not anything opaque, disarmament, no more military buildups, to give up colonial claims, uh, general association of nations uh, akin to the United Nations. Now, you can see here that there are subtle differences between what America wanted and what Great Britain wanted. Great Britain favored a world order that, well, gave Great Britain an inherent advantage. America wasn't necessarily looking for that. America thought that its natural exceptionalism uh, would, if given a level playing field, would naturally beat the other competitors without a leg up. Although this was the American desire, uh, it wasn't prominent enough yet to force all these ideas on the world after World War I. But it appears that America had formed an idea of how that world should work, and it differed from that of Great Britain. And even though America wasn't powerful enough to yet force an American world order, it had gained enough sway for it to have a meaningful impact on it. So following World War I, America would begin to force policies that would naturally hurt the British because Britain favored the system that favored itself. Um, and this wasn't just in areas such as the Yukon or Venezuela, where Great Britain made some sacrifices. America was no longer just concerned about its regional influences. America had her eyes set on the world. The first way in which this happened was at something called the Washington Naval Conference, which uh, occurred in 1921. It was an agreement between the United States, France, Great Britain, Italy, and Japan uh, to discontinue capital ship programs to ensure that there wasn't an arms race in the Pacific. And based upon recent history, it seemed like that was the direction that the countries were going. The explicit purpose, though, was to limit Britain's naval supremacy, and this was two-pronged. The first one was that when Great Britain blockaded Germany, uh, ensuring that no more American imports from the country uh, could arrive during World War I, the only reason why this was possible was because, in this case, might made right. The United States had no choice of being able to, well, make the British stand down from this stance, as its navy was at a comparative disadvantage, um, as Great Britain's was the stronger than America's. So America, even though it declared that it was a neutral country and sought to trade with all countries involved in the war because it wasn't very concerned with the European politics at the time, found this to be, well, egregious, the fact that the British could enforce something that it felt was right. So essentially what the Americans wanted was to ensure that Great Britain would never be able again to dictate to America whom it could trade with. Regardless of the pretenses and what conflict Great Britain found itself in and with whomever and whenever, America wanted to make that decision for itself, which seems fair. And if America could limit the size of the British Navy, in that case, America could potentially, well, muscle Great Britain out of, well, having a blockade on American goods from reaching a certain country. The second facet that was relevant to America was the fact that Great Britain remained allies with Japan following World War I. And in the eyes of America, this alliance had one purpose, 
to go against America. The United States was so concerned with this possibility that the United States Navy developed a plan of war to handle such a contingency, uh, later called Red-Orange, and it developed a war plan against both Great Britain and Japan. It would actually be later used for a war against Germany and Japan because it dealt with the idea that America would have to fight a war on two fronts. The good news is, at least for the United States, that they had the means to get into an arms race with Great Britain uh, or Japan or well, anyone else for that matter, because after World War I, America by far had the strongest economy, and it was probably best laid out by President Harding, who was the President of the United States at the time of the Washington Naval Conference, who said, quote, We'll talk sweetly to them at first, but if they don't agree, then we'll say, God damn you. If it's a race, then the United States is going to go to it, end quote, a.k.a. America will best you one way or another, or you can just, well, capitulate before we even get to fighting. The countries involved in the Washington Naval Conference all ended up agreeing to the terms, which strongly favored America, which was given the largest quota for naval assets to be had in the Pacific. Great Britain was given a similar quota, but because Great Britain had a larger territory due to its colonial possessions, it was seen to be in a relative disadvantage to the United States. The treaty created a lot of ill will in Britain, whom thought that the reproachment was still going on. Uh, by the end of the conference, uh, Great Britain had to give up its alliance with Japan or further risk angering America. America was very forthright with the idea that an alliance with Japan was intolerable. Additionally, due to the treaty, Great Britain had to scrap 20 ships that were under construction. These ships had to be redesigned to be smaller in order to meet the terms of the treaty. The ships were later called the Cherry Tree Class Ship as they had been chopped down by Washington, a not-so-subtle reference to George Washington, whom is famous for cutting down a cherry tree. The relationship between Great Britain and America was on ice following the Washington Naval Conference, and it was perhaps best summarized by Baron Van Sistart in 1927, who was the head of the Foreign Office in the American Department, who said, quote, A war with America would be indeed the most futile and damnable of all, but it is not unthinkable, and we shall more surely avoid by cutting that word from our vocabulary. If it is childish and it is, to suppose that two nations must forever be enemies, it is also childish to stake one's whole existence on the gamble that the two must forever be friends, especially when they never have been really. End quote. Yikes! (laughs) So that same year, the United States began drawing up something called War Plan Red, which was a plan for war against that of the British Empire, with a main focus on the invasion of, drumroll, Canada. Uh, Once again, Canada, 1920s, we're still talking about invading it. Uh, The plan calls for a three-pronged invasion from Vermont to take Montreal and Quebec, from North Dakota to take over the railhead at Winnipeg, and from the Midwest to capture the strategic nickel mines of Ontario. In parallel, the U.S. Navy was going to seize the Great Lakes and blockade Canada's Atlantic and Pacific ports. This plan wasn't just some hypothetical thing. So in 1935... Eight years later, this is still a real issue, War Plan Red was updated and specified which roads to use in the case of an invasion of Canada, and America also planned to build three military airfields near the Canadian-U.S. border and disguise them as civilian airports. And in February 1935, the War Department arranged a congressional appropriation of $57 million to build three border air bases for the purposes of a preemptive strike against that of the Canadian airfields. 
Once again, Canadian annexation would elude America as Germany and Japan led the way into World War II, making the great two English-speaking nations friends again. So outside of the Confederacy getting backed by the British and then having to settle the truce and then the Confederacy becoming a permanent country, this is probably my second favorite thing in an alternative history kind of like, not because I think it's a good idea, but just because it'd be so interesting to see what the world would look like if this would have happened. But it seemed that America and Great Britain are, well, preparing for war. And in some ways they were. So Germany and Great Britain, Germany and Japan uh, obviously became the main conduits for America and Great Britain to fight. But Germany uh, wasn't really a strong power until the 1930s underneath Hitler. So let's just imagine that Hitler decided to be a painter instead, and that career worked out, and Germany never went down that road. And Japan actually was a democracy for a while, but its prime minister, who was pro-peace, got assassinated, and that's how they went down that military road. So let's just envision for a second that those two events didn't happen. It doesn't seem that unlikely that America and Great Britain would find themselves at war. And it should be said here that Great Britain actually developed war plans as well. They were going to run covert ops missions, mainly through parachuting troops into the American territories and hoping to deter a American invasion of Canada by inciting guerrilla warfare within the country, but also naval bombardment of the coastal cities and just, well, taking out American trade. It doesn't seem that crazy, especially considering, well, Great Britain and America were those well, the strongest economic powers at the time. Germany and Japan didn't really have the economic size that either of these two countries had. Japan was definitely a lower-level player when it entered into World War II. It was definitely punching above its belt, and maybe it bit off more than it could chew, which is kind of obvious. Germany just, they did a good job. I'll give them credit there. They did run a good war machine, but they didn't really have that the resources in the 1930s. So this is just one of those things I like to play with. And honestly... If anyone out here is a producer for movies or something like that, this would be an interesting movie. I think it would be pretty fascinating. Anyway, it did not happen, fortunately. And we go through Reproachment 2.0. And this one is supercharged. The United States and Great Britain were forced to cooperate purely due to the threats that emerged. With the quick sacking of Europe by the Germans and the Japanese quickly expanding across the Pacific, in which they controlled the likes of Taiwan, Korea, the Philippines, Hong Kong, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, a large portion of China, and perhaps soon Australia. America and Great Britain would end up merging intelligences, weapons programs, military planning, command structures, operations, which are things that you don't really see too frequently in war between two independent countries. It was quite the feat considering Well, eight years ago, they were both drawn up war plans to deal with the war with each other. But uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and America and Great Britain took that to heart. So this second great rapprochement of America and Great Britain would happen during some of the darkest hours of World War II. Following the war, America would reign supreme. World War II would end the British Empire, though not immediately, but the war was too devastating to Great Britain which had never really even recovered from the First World War. The cost of empire had also been too great, and it was a very costly burden, but it was still the pride of the British, so they maintained it. The Americans were emphatically against assisting the British retain their empire following the war. As FDR would say, quote, 
I think that I speak as America's president when I say America won't help England in this war simply so that she will be able to continue to ride roughshod over colonial peoples, end quote. At the Yalta Conference, which sought to establish a world order following the war, this was uh, something that happened during World War II, where Stalin, FDR, and uh, Churchill got together. And FDR and Stalin stood together in saying that the India uh, subcontinent would become a free state. So it might seem that I've skipped over quite a bit here in terms of the history of World War II. But as Thucydides says, the strong do as they can and the weak suffer what they must. And at this point, Great Britain was run down and destitute. There was no great power struggle anymore. Following the war, there was a struggle of ideas between the United States and Great Britain. But I make no pretense here. America dominated the conversation just because it was such a Goliath. The United States would become the center of the world. The U.S. dollar would become the foundation of the world's currency exchange with all currencies pegged to it, something that was settled at a conference called Bretton Woods. The United Nations was established, an idea that America wanted from the 14 points from Woodrow Wilson, and that would be headquartered in New York City. The World Bank and the IMF, the financial backbone for countries that were developing or in need of assistance, would be located in Washington, D.C., in the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, or GATT for short, uh, which is the precursor to the World Trade Organization, laid out the way in which international trade would occur. Democracy was espoused via loans from the World Bank and IMF, and that was the official policy of the United States. Subjugation by the West was no longer tolerated, a.k.a. colonialism, and it fell outside this new American world order. It became very costly to be an empire. This was the world in which America believed it should be. It was a world with American characteristics. Which, in all honesty, if you were to compare what America built rather than what the British built as far as uh, what they sought as, well, the world's hegemon, America didn't seek favoritism uh, on a trade basis like the British did with its colonies. America believed in democracy and capitalism, which... You might have critiques of, but some would say that they are the most perfect of the imperfect structures that govern our world. But the British Empire would fall apart, probably without even the doing of the Americans, just due to the cost of, well, maintaining it. Um, but anyway, America and Great Britain would become close allies following World War II. They didn't always agree by any measure, but nonetheless, the special relationship, as it's often called, which was a term that was coined by Churchill just after World War II, uh, would persist. The geopolitical conflict between the West and the Soviet Union would only drive the two countries even closer together, and that friendship persists to this day. So the main takeaways from this whole story, I suppose, is thank God for conflict. You've probably heard the old expression, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And that does seem like to be the basis for why America and Great Britain would ever become allies. Whether it was in 1900, when Great Britain was facing threats all across Europe, or in the 1930s, when both countries were drawing up war plans, but once again, luckily, Germany reared its ugly head and drove the two countries into each other's arms. On a more optimistic note, a bloody past, even one such as that between America and Great Britain, doesn't mean future conflict. The two countries managed to put their bad past, well, in the past, and to look forward. And this is an important thing that I want to talk about as well, which 
I think people give too much credence to, which is this idea that America and Great Britain were inherently supposed to be friends just because of the shared culture between the two countries. And I think this is overplayed. Um, for example, you have Ireland in, well, Great Britain, and you can say pretty honestly that neither of those countries are terribly large fans of each other. To this day, uh, they are obviously better friends. Uh, they might jest each other uh, about, I guess, the historical grievances between the two countries. But the shared culture and language and traits did not mean that they were friends. And any civil war within a country is a counterpoint to that narrative that sharing a similar culture it means that you're bound to become best friends one day. So when people say that America and China are too different, well, that doesn't necessarily imply that they can't be friends or that it means that they'll be enemies. Every case is going to be different. And in the case of America and Great Britain, that shared culture didn't matter for 100 years. At some point in time during the rapprochement, it was helpful in the fact that both countries spoke the same language and they started to dovetail as far as their interest goes in democracy and capitalism and all, all that. But to say that they became best friends because of that, I think, is naive. I think the main thing is here, we just got really lucky. Uh, both countries, luckily, were dealing with each other when there was other threats. That's really the biggest takeaway here. And it's unfortunate because it's hard to mimic nowadays uh, when we talk about China next. And I do want to give credit to the British here because they did have some foresight in deciding to reproach America in the 1880s into put a Band-Aid on the past in order to mend the relationship and ensure that America wouldn't necessarily be an enemy. And I guess that's actually what you could say Great Britain did. They ensured that America wouldn't necessarily always be an enemy. Um, and they did set the groundwork for them becoming an ally. And they made those sacrifices during America's, you know, tumbling onto the world stage during things like the Spanish-American War. Great Britain backed America, and that helped. Um, I don't know what would have happened if Great Britain didn't reach out to America um, in that time period or maybe opposed the Americans in the Spanish-American War. Maybe America would have sided with the Germans, which isn't that implausible, considering, well, Germany uh, does have a lot of, well, first-generation immigrants in the United States at that time, as well as America having a large Irish population. So I don't think it was a given that we'd be necessarily on the side of the British in World War One, regardless of what the British did in 1900. I think that's uh, too much of an assumption to make. But anyway, this is an important part as well, which is the stories of the past that we talked about here, they can kind of create this illusion that the world we live in is predictable, and that's just simply not the case. This podcast has been uh, humbling, to say the least, because I thought I understood the narrative between these two countries, and, uh, and it's really not. There's so many things that haphazardly pop up, and both countries, especially the British, whom were apt at diplomacy at the time of America's rise, were a lot of times reactive and not proactive. And luckily, the reactive nature played America and Great Britain into each other's arms rather than into conflict. So, to surmise for the podcast, we can quote Queen Victoria, whom in 1897 said, Here we are on top of the world. We have arrived at this peak to stay there forever. There is, of course, this thing called history, but history is something unpleasant that happens to others. Well, that was said about Great Britain in 1897. We could make the same quote for the United States right now. And just as Queen Victoria said that in 1897, which was a period of time where Great Britain's absolute power was already in question, well, we could say the same for America right now. Although America still retains its number one position, 
uh, militarily and economically, um, and other factors as well. Just like Queen Victoria's quote, which was 17 years before the Great War, which would, for the most part, officially end Great Britain's Pax Britannica, well, these next 17 years or 20 will prove to be decisive for America as well, as it confronts the realities of China's rise. Or perhaps Queen Victoria's quote will be literal for the United States. Maybe history will be something unpleasant that happens to others. Sorry for the trap music if that surprised you. I'm just really excited to be done with this first episode. This was a lot more difficult than I thought it would be from the research, which, well, extended way beyond the initial time period I allotted. And then recording, this is a completely different skill set that I didn't really, well, know was required until I started doing it. So actually, this is the third first episode I have recorded. Um, but I guess that's how it goes when you try and do something like this. But nonetheless, it's done, it's out there, and I hope you enjoyed it. Now, for this finale, uh, for the first episode, I uh, wanted to try something new. Well, I guess this whole thing is new, but I wanted to... Well, do it anyway. Uh, it's called Bizarre History. So when I was reading um, all these books and things like this about the subjects, I keep stumbling upon these things that are just kind of funny and outrageous, and I wanted to share them. So to begin, so in a book I was reading called Dissolving Tensions, which talked about America and Great Britain and the reproachment, there was a guy named William Ewart Gladstone, who was a member of Parliament who had actually become Prime Minister after Palmerstone, uh, Palmerstone being the Prime Minister of Great Britain during America's Civil War in the 1860s. And he actually remarked in 1862, when Great Britain was considered inter intervening uh, in the Civil War, that the South had made its case for being an independent country, he said, and that slavery would come to an end one day regardless. So in exchange uh, for Great Britain siding on behalf of the Confederacy, he actually made the argument that the United States should obtain Canada uh, for accepting the Confederacy uh, as a country, which is just bizarre, considering that ended up being the main one of the main reasons for why Great Britain did not intervene itself was France losing Canada, and you had this guy just wanting to give it away. In the next example of bizarre history, uh, I read a book called The War Lovers, and it's about America's, I guess, beginning to act as a well, world power, so right around 1900. And so there's an expression from the yellow, yellow journalist of the day. So yellow journalism was like the fake news. And one of the most famous was a guy named William Randolph Hearst. Um, and in his newspaper was known for uh, doing something that, well, the quote was that journalism that acts was their expression. And it was quite literal. So after the daughter of the president of an independent Cuban movement was arrested, Hearst hired a young American to go rescue her from a Cuban prison and bring her back to America. Which this guy did, which is insane. Just imagine if, well, the New York Times asked someone to go into modern-day Syria and rescue someone from the rebel movement there. It's just bizarre that they would do such a thing. But anyway. Next, also in The War Lovers. So following the explosion of the USS Maine, the USS Maine was that ship in the Cuban harbor which blew up, which led to the Mexican, or sorry, Spanish-American War. Uh, it would be six months or so before the war was declared, but... Uh, the war lovers, uh, Teddy Roosevelt and those jingos, were always pushing for it. 
So the Spanish found this whole thing just absolutely ridiculous. Everyone, for the most part, knew that the explosion uh, of the main was due to an internal failure, not a mine or the Spanish. So in order to show how ridiculous, I guess, the thing was, the Spanish held uh, a bullfight. Uh, but the bullfight was quite different. The U.S. was reflected by an elephant, and uh, the Spanish were refre- reflected by a bull. And they put both in the ring together, hoping to see the elephant and the bull fight. Nothing happened. I'm not quite sure what they expected, but I'm sure it would have been a sight to see. The next thing also comes from the book The War Lovers, and this was about a fight that broke out in, on April 13th, 1898. But it wasn't a normal fight. It was a fight that happened in the House of Congress. So this was a really tumultuous time in America. You had the Jingos. Uh, they were an important faction. But you also had the progressives fighting for things like a silverback currency instead of a gold one. America was just getting pulled in a lot of different directions. And there was, there was tension, and that was reflected in Congress. So anyway, a Republican congressman called a Democrat congressman a liar. And, uh, well, a bound volume of the congressional record was thrown at the accuser, which erupted into a ruckus. The aisles of Congress filled with congressmen shouting, tugging, and swinging wildly. Uh, a congressional page was knocked out. Uh, the sergeant-at-arms was actually beckoned to control the mob of congressmen. And when he approached the mob of congressmen, uh, they replied to him, quote, Are you going to hit a congressman? The Congress did eventually settle down, uh, but the sergeant-at-arms unfortunately did not hit any of the congressmen. And finally, I would like to blame... Both World War One and the militarization of Europe uh, on a guy named Alfred Thayer Mahan, who was an American uh, who published a book called The Influence of Sea Power Upon History. This book laid out the notion that powerful countries needed strong navies in order to continue their successes. This book inspired Kaiser Wilhelm, uh, who would be the German leader at the time of World War One to develop a navy. And the British were very well aware of this fact that Germany was building it to challenge them. Uh, And I think this is best laid out by a quote from Churchill, who said at the time, quote, they build navy so as to play a part in the world's affairs. It's a sport to them. It's life and death to us, end quote. So that whole naval buildup ended up turning the Germans against the British and vice versa. And it led to the outbreak of World War One, which would further lead to the Essentially, the outbreak of World War II, because those were linked together. So Alfred Thayer Mahan, I guess he didn't do anything specifically wrong, but I really wish he would have written maybe a fiction book instead of a book about the influence of sea power upon history. Might have saved a life or two. Well, that is the end of the show, guys. I hope you enjoyed it, and stay tuned for episode two in the series, The History of China. Bang it to the curb. Bang it to the curb, bang it to the curb, bang it to the curb, bang it to the curb.